0: Hello, friends. Well, hello once again, my friends. I'm happy to have you back here again on the Improv and Magic podcast. I'm L.D. Madeira, and I'm really excited about today's episode. My guest today is an amazing performer and a great human being. Today, I'm talking to Douglas Wittick. Douglas is a professional actor and is a veteran of UCB theater, Pit Theater and Magnet Theaters in New York City. He has performed in various shows and festivals across the country, and has also had multiple television appearances, including on Comedy Central and ESPN. Douglas is also a founding member of the world-renowned improv group North Coast, a hip-hop improv group that has been named one of Time Out New York's top ten comedy shows. In addition. Douglas Wittick is also a musician and an audio producer with over 20 years of experience. He has his own studio in Brooklyn called Sweet Tea Studios, where he provides everything from voiceover reels and jingles to mixing and mastering services. Douglas was such a blast to talk to. We get into a lot in this conversation, including his beginnings in improv, his deep love of music and how he got to appear on The Rosie O'Donnell Show. I'm sure you're going to have a great time with this one, my friends. Here's my guest, Douglas Wittick. My friends, with me now is the absolutely amazing, I'm so excited to talk to this guy, Mr. Douglas Wittick. Hey, Douglas, how you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I am doing great. I think you're the first person I've talked to who's in New York right now. Oh,
1: cool. Yeah. And you'll hear some of the New York sounds. Uh, But oh, that's that's great to hear. Happy to be the first.
0: I visited New York many, many years ago. I'm going to say like maybe 20 years ago or something like that. And of course, I did all the touristy things, went to Manhattan and, and all that stuff. For you, what has the New York life been?
1: New York New York life has been fascinating. I've been here for almost 15 years and it's truly one of those places that tests you in a new way the longer you stay here. So whether it's the just endurance of not having a car, right, and having to walk everywhere and run errands on your Um, on your own or the endurance of the fact that everyone's always kind of looking for the next best thing. New York tests you all the time. And so I feel like I I would say the, the biggest hallmark of it is trying to find ways to stay fresh, not burn out and take care of yourself so that you can be present for all New York has to offer. And it's very difficult because of how expensive it is. You tend to run yourself ragged trying to make money so that you can stay here. So
0: Right, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, I've talked to a lot of people who tried to live the New York life, and after a while, they just couldn't do it. They're like, I'm moving back to Florida. Do you see that a lot? Do you see people who just can't seem to, to hack it in NYC?
1: Yeah, for sure. It's one of those things that it it's definitely – tempting, right? I'm from Boca Raton originally. I don't know if you know that. I actually did not know that. Yeah. And so, you know, I go down all the time to recharge and I don't blame anyone for going to either sunnier shores or nature. Um, I travel out of New York as much as humanly possible because the city is in an unnatural environment. The concrete, the people, there's too many people. We're all stacked on top of each other. It's not the way... Humans are naturally meant to live, but there's pluses to it, right? The insane networking, the business, the partying, the incredible culture. There's all these upsides to that. But whenever I hear that someone left, I'm like, okay, me, you know, didn't work for them. Maybe they'll come back or whatever. But um, I consider myself somewhat of a lifer for a couple of reasons. But, you know, the main is that I have built my network and my businesses here. But I could also see myself um, working in maybe the West Coast or even back in Florida. There's a super healthy comedy and music scene down there as well.
0: I live in Coconut Creek, which is actually a couple of miles uh, away from Boca Raton. So I'm familiar with the area.
1: Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yes. Yamato exit. Let's go.
0: Yeah. So next time you're back in town, let's hang out sometime.
1: Let's do it. I love that.
0: Let's start at the beginning with you, Douglas. Where did you grow up? And what was growing up like for you?
1: Sure. So after the first four years of my life in Nashville, which, you know, is just where you were born, and my parents moved to Boca Raton, first in West Boca for the first like two or three years, and then for like since I was seven onwards in East Boca. Uh, Boca Raton's a weird place to grow up because it's where a lot of people go to retire. Yes, it is. (laughs) And so, you know, it's year round sunshine, uh, a population that's 65 plus, snowbird population, which is migratory people who, you know, if for anyone that doesn't know the term snowbird, it's people who come down just for the winter. Uh, and so suddenly in January, the Carabas restaurant has a line down the block and you're like, what happened? Did Carabas get better? It's like, Oh no, <laughs> no. It's uh, people who are down here for just a season and they, they have their hit Houston's, they hit Carabas, they hit Longhorn. They have their whole regiment. It's a whole thing down there. And so I feel that Boca informed me because it was a little bit of a a carpe diem thing because you're around a lot of people who are at the end of their life. And so they're constantly giving you advice on life and you're seeing that they did all these things already. So it kind of teaches you to seize the day in a way because there's all these both successful and older people around you. So you're like, oh, cool. So I, I see that if I really grasp the moment I really take advantage of the current moment that maybe I can come back to Boca but changed
0: do you have any brothers or sisters out of curiosity
1: yeah I have an older brother he's three and a half years older than me
0: sweet so just one brother
1: Yep. Yep. Just one sibling. And he's also creative and, but he didn't go down a performing or creative path. He ended up working with Marine life and he also now is, um, works in behavioral therapy for autistic children. So he helps oh, Wow, like, yeah, yeah. ABA therapy.
0: Oh, wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. So what were you like uh, as a kid growing up in this town filled with old people?
1: <laughs> um it gives you a sense of humor that's for sure you see a lot of slow drivers um and a large jewish population in boca raton gave me a love of like all things jewish food and jewish culture i went to so many bar and bat mitzvahs growing up also being in south florida you grow up around tons of amazing cuban food and cuban culture oh, yes. so it's a melting pot of incredible cultures down in south florida and kind of a different vibe than the melting pot of new york's melting pot uh um, um, like, it's more concentrated, you know, Jewish, Cuban. Uh, those are the, you know, two of the predominant ones in South Florida. So, yeah, I would say that um, I'm, I think I might have lost the exact response to your question. But um, can you re- do you mind repeating it so I can get just right sure. back in the pocket? Uh,
0: yeah, just what were you like as a kid?
1: What was I like? Oh, well, the, the, the better answer is that I was very into music. I started playing guitar when I was seven years old, and I had this really enthusiastic guitar teacher named Olaf, and he got me into playing guitar. And so the, I would say the main thing about me from kind of seven years old onward was I was really into guitar.
0: Getting to know you, I could definitely tell that music certainly played a big role in your life. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, and still does.
0: What type of music made an impact on you when you were growing up?
1: I got really into heavy metal. Uh, My my teacher was this kind of like long-haired shredder type. He could also play funk. He could also play jazz. He could hang with the best of them. Uh, but uh, in terms of like you know high class music or whatever you'd want to call it, uh, but I think of metal as like what Bach and Mozart and Beethoven would be making now. And so he got me into Pantera, he got me into Metallica. Nice. I was like this ten year old kid playing along with Cowboys from Hell. So um, <laughs> that was that was kind of the influence that I had musically, and the way it's informed me now is it's just a lifelong love of all things music and all things creativity.
0: Are you still a big lover of heavy metal or are there certain types of music that you tend to gravitate more towards?
1: I still love metal. I don't go out of my way to like listen to the new Metallica album. I don't go out of my way to see the current Pantera reunion tour. I still love it though. I would say the one I revisit more is um, hardcore. So like the Blood Brothers, Thursday, Glass Job. those are the ones I still visit uh, and listen to now. But in terms of the music, I like freshly enjoy. I'm a big hip hop head now. I listen to you know all the, most of the hip hop that's coming out these days. And uh, you know, I'm not like hip hop head in terms of like the really hardcore indie rap. Like I can't rattle off like indie rappers the way some of my friends can. But I really love. Rap production, I love rappers, and um, that's probably like most of the new music that I consume is a mix of like R and B, hip hop, like funk based music. Uh, yeah. You know, it's
0: funny. I see nowadays, the big thing is all of these reunion tours that you see all the time. Like I know Metallica has one now and it's one of those where you can go and see it in a movie theater or something like that. And it's it's funny. I always I always question those because, yeah, you're excited to see them. But then again, it's Metallica in 2023. It's not the same Metallica that we heard back in the nineties. Do you kind of feel the same way? Cause I know people like this. They don't want to see reunion tours. They want to remember the band, how they originally were. Are you yeah. like that? Or do you still enjoy the reunion tours?
1: It's a huge question. You know, it's like, okay, do we want to see some guys who used to rock out hard in their twenties and you know, early thirties doing the same tunes? Or do we want to see the evolved Metallica and you know, do do bands have to have an arc do they have to change and do these reunion tours feel like almost like cosplay of what the band used to be and i think you can have it both ways you know i think that if paul and ringo went on stage right now and threw on gray suits i'd lose my mind i'd be like oh my god oh yeah yeah i would lose it i'd lose it i if they just So two of them on stage did a show. I, people would go berserk and you could tell Paul does not understand the gravity of that. When it gets brought up in interviews, it's like you two are both alive. You need to perform together. But, um, it, you know, deep in those, um, books, I don't know if you know anything about the Paul's relationship with Ringo. He would totally make fun of Ringo's drumming in the studio. Um, but in terms of like your Metallicas or the fact that Taylor Swift's tour is gonna to be on, um in a movie theater, that's not really a reunion though. In terms of reunion specifically, I think that I think it's more power to these bands because they're making income and it's so hard to make money in music, you know, between placements or touring. Those are like two of the actual revenue streams. So power to them. and if fans want to go see, you know, Metallica, once they're in their 70s still singing Master of Puppets, sure. (laughs) You know, enjoy.
0: Yeah. It probably also depends on the band uh, itself, you know, because I think there are some bands that are uh, timeless, you know, like Paul and Ringo. Yeah. And I think there's some bands where you can kind of tell that they've kind of overstayed their welcome a bit. Uh, Yeah. I'm sure you've seen many examples of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's hard to say who off the top of my head, but, like, I'm not sh- entirely sure that Dimebag and Vinny would have wanted Pantera to keep on touring without <laughs> them. Vanna Halen's an example of, like, you know, will they ever just say, hey, that was that. Uh, but... The Stones, I think, probably do have the vitality still. You know, Mick is so spry, and so is um, – what's his name? Keith uh, Richards. They're so – they're on it. Keith you Richards. Know. Yeah, Ronnie Wood, too. And so I'm not sure, but I do think that some of it is cringe, and then some of it is amazing. And I'm I'm sad that we're not getting, um, you know, a 70-year-old version of Prince because uh, that would have been welcome for me. I would have sprung top dollar to see Prince live, and I didn't get to.
0: Mm, totally, totally. So, when did you become interested in becoming a performer?
1: I was into the musical side of performing very young, but in terms of theater, we did like acting theater games classes in fifth grade, and I was like, oh my God. So, I auditioned for the Middle School of the Arts, at Bach MSOA in Palm Beach County. And I went there for theater, even though I was also taking guitar lessons at home. So that was when I got interested in performing. I had some really great teachers who exposed me to musical theater, to um, monologues, to improv. And those were when when my first New York trips happened. And actually, no, I saw, I went, I actually went to New York a little bit oh it was the same time i went to new york in sixth grade because i was on the rosie o'donnell show were you Um, really yeah i was on three times for harry potter related things the first one was a trivia contest uh with rosie all
0: right well we got to talk about that for a second yeah
1: we we definitely do yeah yeah
0: how did that Uh, come about
1: we literally, I just we watched Rosie every single day. It was the most fun thing ever to watch. And you'd come home from school and you'd watch Rosie with your mom. And um, they were always have smart kids on. Oh, this is a real smart kid. And uh, <laughs> and so I was like, I want to be one of Rosie's smart kids. It was always like, oh, this kid, he's uh he can juggle, or oh, this kid, he knows the name of every parrot, or uh, you know, like it would always just. <laughs> always be some something but then she started giving kids the harry potter books and i was livid i was like i like harry potter these kids are chumps and so (laughs) my mom called nbc and they had a pitch line they just had a pitch line and so we left a voicemail and someone got back to us from nbc and they were like this is crazy timing because we were looking for a harry potter expert a kid who's a Harry Potter expert. So if you type in Doug and Rosie, it is one of the first YouTube search results. And I, um, I do a little trivia contest where JK asks the questions, JK Rowling Mm -hmm. and, um, Rosie and I duke it out.
0: Wow. So make sure everyone gets on YouTube and look for that. Yeah. How old were you when, when you were on Rosie?
1: I was on Rosie when I was nine years old. And that was my first New York trip. And I saw Annie Get Your Gun on that trip with Bernadette Peters and Tom Wopat. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a banger. It was so good. <laughs> uh, and so we saw that and then that I was kind of hooked at, like on theater. I loved theater from kind of that moment onward. I had seen a few regional productions, but that was when I was like, whoa, that's how good it can be.
0: Do you have, cause I think a lot of actors have this and I know I have this too. Do you have that one show that is definitely your go-to show? It's hands down your all time favorite play or musical of all time.
1: That's a great question. I used to absolutely be so obsessed with Avenue Q and then that <laughs> moved into Mormon and I actually, it's, it was not on Broadway, so I'm not going to say it, but one of the musicals that changed my life was South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. <laughs> I just, I thought that was the greatest thing. I watched it nonstop.
0: I love that movie so, so much. It, and it's actually, surprisingly, a well-written musical, too.
1: It's genuinely great musical. Even Sondheim said it's one of the best musicals of the 20th century.
0: You know, I would love to see that live. That would be a great show live.
1: I would buy tickets so fast. I I was at the first preview of Book of Mormon. Really? And I was like, I am not missing this. And they had to restart it because of a technical difficulty. Oh, really? Yep. Live theater.
0: <laughs> I love Book of Mormon, too. I mean, again, yeah, it, it, it's crass because it's Trey Parker and Matt Stone. But when you get past that, it's such a great, well-written story, and the music is absolutely fantastic. It's one of those shows where you can remember the music in your head for weeks on end. That's why I love it.
1: afterwards, yeah. And it does have its blind spots. They did some things to remedy it um, over COVID. They made some edits. And I think they could have done a better job at making it clear that this was how Mormons viewed the Africans. I think that was something that they could have – Used a device right to not say this is how Matt and Trey view after, right? This is how Mormons are seeing them, and that lens. If they had done a better job of that, I think um, that would have been useful to the show's like hundred year longevity, right? But the music stands on its two feet and is just truly mind blowing. Like, I can't listen to two by two without having it in my head for weeks afterwards.
0: Same here. Same here. And I've sung I Believe in the Shower so many
1: times. (laughs) I love that.
0: And, you know, coincidentally, the touring cast of Book of Mormon is actually playing here at the Broward Center.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah, my wife and I are trying to get tickets to go because we really want to see it.
1: Yeah, you should totally go. You'll love it.
0: Yeah, everyone should go see it. It's fantastic. So getting back to your Florida life, what was it about performing that really made you feel like, ah, this is something I really want to do more
1: of. There's something so energetic about the love coming back at you from an audience. Mm -hmm. But I think what some people don't fully give enough weight to is the love you're giving out to the audience as a performer and the goal of moving the audience. So there's been so much said about you know, oh, performers, they need it. They need that laughter or they need that applause. But you know who needs it too? The audience. The audience needs that laugh, that sob, that story. We are in the business of moving people. And I never was able to put it into that, those words until recently. But as a younger person, middle school, high school, I loved strapping on my guitar or walking on stage and evoking a response i love that i was never super into politics like because just i don't know i never got into like the political side of art but like making people laugh making people cry with a good story or a great song always was something that i just loved that i guess there is a sense of power there but i think it's more of a like you're giving your energy because you have a lot you just, you know, it's springing out of you. So you use that for good.
0: Yeah. I mean, how many times have you been to a show and then afterwards you hear people in the audience saying, wow, I really needed that
1: many times. And it never gets old, you know, people will come to your show and just be like, either, how did you do that? Or God, I laughed so hard. I really needed that. And that, is what keeps me in the game because the durations and in the, in, in the interim can be very challenging. You know, you go through like a week or two where you're like just dealing with admin or just in rehearsals and you're like, oh my God, why do I do this for this small amount of pay? And so <laughs> um, then you get on stage and you realize, oh no, like life is, life is good. You are, and uh, you're, you become very grateful for the fact that you're able to move people like that.
0: Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. When you were a kid and getting yourself so involved in theater and all this stuff in school, what would you say was the trajectory that you had planned for your life at that point?
1: I looked up to my dad immensely and still do. Uh, He's a physician and I thought, oh, that could be cool, but I never felt the burning desire to go into that. Now that I understand the way the world works, (laughs) I've actually probably would have been potentially wise (laughs) Um, (laughs) because the world basically, you know, unless you're solving someone's problem, people don't want to pay you for anything. I would say my plan was for a while was probably to try to get into Berkeley. And then once I fell deeper in love with acting and specifically improv, I decided, oh, no, no, I have to go to UCB and NYU because I saw, oh, NYU is where people are going to meet other actors and comedians. There's like a networking melting pot there. And I saw that UCB was generating some of the best sketch performers around. It was also a, a new style of sketch that was as smart as it was silly and I was very attracted to that I, I would watch UCB performers on Conan and I was just like what is this pipeline, where are they getting these people and I saw some of them at ASCAT when I was 16 years old and so that heavily affected me uh, seeing ASCAT. so if you had asked me when I was 14 I probably would have said that I might have go to Berkeley for music and then I did Circle in the Square theater program in New York for a summer and seeing all those incredible shows and feeling, really, feeling like I really spread my wings as an actor combined with seeing improv for the first time made me say whole long form improv, sorry, long form improv. I had seen Who's Line. Uh, that really made me go, hold on one second. I've always loved SNL. I've always loved comedy. I thought stand-up was the only way in. Now I realize there's this whole world of IO, UCB, Second City. And um, I said, I have to do that.
0: How did you specifically discover improv, out of curiosity?
1: I was watching um, Spelling Bee, the musical, over and over again. Well, even before that, I had seen Who's Line, and I had a teacher uh, at Bach MSOA who was the improv guy, and he had us running tons of short form all the time, and he was, you know, so funny in a way that now only I can appreciate now the driest, most truth-based straight man work, or now they call it voice of reason work, um, where you are just calling out the ridiculousness in the most sophisticated way possible. That's what he was doing. And we were all the ding dongs running around being the silly ones, the clowns. And now that I look back, I'm like, oh, well, he enabled us to be as silly as we wanted because he was releasing the tension from that chaos. And so he would teach us all sorts of short form games. And we fell in love with short form and whose line and all that, but I didn't know how to bridge the gap from that to something like Saturday Night Live. I didn't understand, okay, how does someone go from doing Who's Line to something like Mad TV or Saturday Night Live? I, you know, And so to understand, oh, no, there's a way to train for a longer version of this um, didn't happen until I was like 14 or 15. So up until that point, I had only understood improv in a very limited way.
0: I think a lot of people discover improv that very same way. I think most people start off by seeing shows like Whose Line and they start off by seeing short form. And, you know, a lot of uh, high schools, if they have an improv group, it's mostly short form. And I think that's always the, for lack of a better term, introduction for most people. I think everyone is kind of like, oh, this is what improv is. It's short form. It's uh, things you never hear and world's worst this and, and, and that. Um, when you saw short form for the first time, did that kind of form your original opinion of what improv was all about?
1: Yes, but not in a negative way. If anything, it was like the first rush. It was like the equivalent of taking a surf lesson, but you're still on the white water. Right. Mm. And so there's no shoulder yet. There's no, uh, face of the wave. You're just kind of like, oh, this is pretty sweet but there's it's a little disorganized it's maybe it's a little chaotic you get in you get out that's how short form feels to me and it's a cleverness game instead of a truth based behavior based game so you know whoever has the most clever joke wins in short form and performance matters but cleverness is more important at least in my initial kind of you know i could be challenged on that um but i feel like I think that seeing that there was other modalities made me say, oh, this isn't just a party trick, this is a discipline. And I was so obsessed with it that I was like, looking up the fact that Chicago was um, having some of their colleges give credits in it like that's how into it I was um looking back I'm glad I didn't go that deep because I'm glad that I expanded my education into like Stanislavski based training and all that stuff in tandem with UCB but I think that people's first exposure being short form is it's good it's a good thing It's like saying, okay, all right, you tried this. Now you're ready for like, I don't even want to say the harder stuff, but just more of a wider collection in your repertoire of possibilities for what type of improv you could go see.
0: Yeah. And I definitely didn't mean that question in a negative way because I agree. You know, I think watching shows like Whose Line, I mean, for me, if I never discovered Whose Line, I wouldn't have gotten into this crazy world, you know?
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah, it, it was actually from watching Who's Line that I discovered, oh, you could do a whole improvised show? Really? I, I didn't yes. think that was possible.
1: Didn't think right. that was possible. longer than 30 minutes? What? Yeah.
0: <laughs> but I do want to touch upon one thing that you just mentioned. I want to ask you about the first time you saw long form improv. Where was that? And what was it like to see long form for the very first time?
1: Yes. So the first time I saw long form improv was at ASCAT at UCB when I was like 15 or 16 years old. And it was Chris Gethard telling the stories. And he told this horrible story about trash building up in his apartment or college dorm. And it was so detailed and so horrific. And then they did improv based on it. And I didn't know what tag outs were, I didn't know what sweeps were, but like, it was just this murderer's row of improvisers. The guy from The Hangover, Ed Helms. And it was just like, and a bunch of other writers from uh, the Late Show with Conan and stuff. And it was just absolutely fantastic. And I was like, Oh my God. So I brought it back. I was like, all right, we're doing heralds now. <laughs> Obviously I didn't know anything about how to do them well, but we, my high school improv troupe, which still exists in South Florida, the hairy details at Dreyfus school of the arts. <laughs> I um, love the name. <laughs> I wish I came up with it. My friend Raphael came up with it. It's a great name though. Um, yeah, the hairy details still performs together. So we brought Harold that back and tried to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I remember the first time I really witnessed long form and it was, I've, I've told the story many times, but I love telling it because I, th- I think it's a good story. Um, I remember at our festival at just the funny the Miami improv festival years ago, I saw Mark Sutton and Stacey Halal do their duo. Have you ever seen them do their duo before?
1: I haven't. No
0: oh my gosh, they have this incredible duo where they have a format. It's a three-scene show called The Comedy, A Tragedy, and A Romance. And the second scene, it was the tragedy scene, and that really kind of opened my eyes to see, oh, wow, this is so much more than just world's worst painter, you know? Yeah. And that was like a big life-changing moment for me, and I feel like there are a lot of people who... When they discover long form, something kind of clicks in them because, like you said, they see that there's something more here. You know, the um, the world kind of opens up a lot more. Have you had that experience a lot in seeing that in people?
1: Yeah, I, I, get, I there's a few moments where your like stomach drops, your heart rate increases, and you go, "Oh my god, there's more to what I thought." And seeing ASCAP was one of those moments. And then seeing, they were called um, I Eat Pandas. That was the first time I saw musical improv and I was shocked and shook and moved. And then after that, um, the first time I saw improvised Shakespeare, I was shook. Uh, Those were three distinct moments that rocked my world. And seeing the absolute possibilities of what improv can be.
0: So you mentioned that you wanted to go to Berkeley. Did you ever make it to Berkeley?
1: No, I went to Tisch. I went to the acting school at Tisch. I went to Stella Adler. So I chose acting training instead of musical training for college.
0: When you were learning acting at Trish, what were some of the things that you got out of it that you feel like really helped you develop yourself as a performer?
1: There is a, there's a lot of physical and vocal awareness work in acting training that improv training just does not do. And some of it is very technical in terms of like facing out, not cheating, like, you know, state, very technical stage work. But some of it is as simple as being heard and understood clearly on stage and you don't realize how important that is until you go to a lot of theater and you realize, wow, is that person good at acting or could I just hear them? And <laughs> <laughs> like I, I saw I saw Robin Williams in Bengal Tiger on Broadway. His performance was great, but he was the loudest person on that stage by a mile. And I believe it, it made the show come alive. Um, his performance specifically as well. And so I think that studying classical acting training, which is stuck in another era, by the way. It's very good. Some of it is very good. at stimulating an ima- actor's imagination and um, stimulating their emotional inner life. That's all really important, but there's a lot of things they don't teach that are important to understand now in terms of auditioning. Uh, now actors are required to, not all, but it sure does help if you understand the internet and you understand branding and It's a new world, and I don't think that the group theater in the 50s could have ever anticipated that actors would have to be so, so aware of their status as single-person businesses. Uh, You know, I know people who get new headshots every year. used to be that you get them every five years, every 10 years. Now people I know get them every year. Uh, So, and I don't think that that's necessarily good or bad. I just think that it's a sign of the times. And so... I think that studying in a very formal Shakespeare, Chekhov, Ibsen, Strindberg studio helped broaden my understanding of the traditions in theater that led up to when maybe Del Close started developing long form. I know there was a lot of other names during that period. Del Close is just the easiest one to pull. Um, And so I don't think that that group of people in chicago necessarily were hardcore method actors but i think having a diverse understanding of different acting styles and approaches has helped me in improv uh and a lot of it has been technical like being heard being understood stagecraft things like that that a lot of people who only study improv um never get exposed to and i think would benefit benefit from
0: let me ask you this. Do you consider yourself an improviser or an actor who
1: improvises? I consider myself an improviser who has studied acting training. Okay. Yeah, I've definitely gone deep 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 into improv and it's been um I took my first UCB class in June of 2008 and have been doing it ever since. North Coast was founded in February of 2009. And so um, it's been pretty pretty hardcore uh, ever since then. But I do love acting, and I do love being in plays and musicals, and I consider myself an actor. Um, but I, improv and sketch has really been the name of the game for me the last decade.
0: So when you were taking classes at UCB, what were some of the things, and I know UCB has their mythology and a lot of different schools have their own mythology, obviously. But when you were taking classes at UCB, what were some of the things that you were learning about improv that you didn't know before?
1: I think that their codification of behavior patterns is very useful to people trying to wrap their head around how to play with other improvisers. Uh, and by labeling it game it helps young comedians have a working vocabulary for mm-hmm. working together i also think their insistence on grounded play which actually it's funny outside of new york people will claim the ucb is very broad uh but my teachers zach woods curtis gwynn betsy stover all were very intent on not winking not I being ironically detached and playing it as absolutely real as possible. You could be saying the dumbest thing, silliest thing ever, but you play it with total truth and conviction. And one time I came into a scene and Eliza Skinner was like, play that cop again, but play it real. And mm-hmm. I didn't know how to do that at the time. I came in, I was like, oh, I'm a cop. Right? I did it like that. Oh, ho, ho, hey, ho, ho, hey, ho. And instead, it was like, "Well, what would a cop really sound like right there? You can still play the game, but how would a cop really talk and that That kind of blew my mind because there's there's room for silly, there's room for broad characters, but you gotta earn it. you gotta earn it and u c b helped me understand that you cannot create tension and release it if there's no contrasted base reality to create that tension on and that to me as a young comedian was very very um consciousness expanding
0: so it sounds like ucb was actually a a very good fit for you because from what i'm hearing it sounds like they really focus on making the moment real and as believable as possible
1: yep Yeah. And that actually went well with the acting training because I was a bit of a cuckoo bird, high energy, absurd, bananas, young performer. And so for both of these schools to focus so heavily on grounding me, it helped. It helped me uh, have a way to work that was more grounded and based in the truth.
0: Do you find that people who go straight into improv without any sort of acting training whatsoever have kind of a
1: more difficult time getting into it? You know, I don't know. It depends. Yeah, I think I think it it's such a it's such a good question because there's that whole chapter in truth and comedy where they talk about, oh, you know, we love that we have just like regular re- um, people in our theater. Some of them you just pluck off the street, and I think that that is a hallmark of what makes improv unique and beautiful. Is that there are people who work desk jobs and then come like and do improv on Saturday night, but they have no intention of auditioning. Uh, there's a member of North Coast that has no intention of auditioning, no intention of working in film and TV. He works in student affairs during the week, and on the weekends and weeknights, he does improv. And he is a heck of an actor. And I don't know if he's ever taken acting classes. I think that, that it's great. I think it's great that there are people who come in with zero um, acting background. And I think that lends improv a unique flavor that classical theater sometimes could use a little bit more of that, like, whoa, is that person even acting right now (laughs) vibe? You know, it's like, is that, or is that person being themselves or is that person a character or were they already that character when they walked in?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's funny as an improv teacher, there are a lot of times where I'll get students who have... Never touched a stage in their entire life, and then as they go through the classes, you see a lot of these people who they just develop themselves so well that you could see them in a in a Broadway play, and and it's incredible. And I think yeah. it also depends on you know we're all different, you know everyone is their own unique individual, and everyone is has their own internal wiring. So mm-hmm. I think that there are some who without it can still get great at it. And I think there's yeah. some who could probably use it more, but I think it's very individualized in my opinion.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause some people are sort of naturals of playing it real. Yeah. You know, like I read that Taylor Kitsch had never studied acting before being in Friday night lights. I read that recently cause I'm catching up on that show, even though it's so long ago. Um, I'm finally watching it and yeah, he just is like this model they plucked In the show, and so some people just have a net they just take to the camera. And you know, Adler always claimed that they trained Brando, he took like a few workshops with her, (laughs) and that he was just a natural,
0: yeah. But it is good to have on your resume that you train Brando,
1: oh, yeah. And it's bank, (laughs) it's bank. And trust me, they let you know when you're signing up, they remind you, De Niro, Brando, (laughs) have studied this method.
0: Yeah, right, right. It's kind of like when you go to uh, Second City's website and the first thing you see is everyone who's been there, you know, oh, look, Steve Carell, Chris Farley, and, and all those people yeah. to remind you, the these people were here too. Yeah. So UCB obviously has that legacy as well because so many people have come from there. You know, you think about uh, Amy Poehler and all these other great people. For you, what did it feel like to be in this, this really world famous institution, knowing that there are so many of the greats that are out there now that came there before you.
1: It was absolutely fascinating time to be at UCB. There was people getting on SNL specifically from UCB, New York every year. And you would go see someone's solo show. And then the next year they'd be on SNL, Kate McKinnon, Bobby Moynihan, Neil Casey got plucked to write. You just could, you watch it and you just couldn't believe the level of like intense creative pressure cooker happening at that time. And it was inspiring and it still inspires me. It was a very unique and beautiful era at the theater where I felt like all, everything is all happening right now. And there was still, and is still, tons of that happening but it feels more intense when you're younger because you're like not desensitized maybe to it as much of people breaking through their mm-hmm. careers so it's like you're like 21 you're like overwhelmed because someone you just um you know i was sweeping an interning and someone that passed you ben schwartz is now selling out radio city for improv so i think for me, there was it was humbling and inspiring to see the level of work being done in a basement. You're like, okay, Paul Downs just sold out his one-person show and absolutely murdered. Could that be me? You know, you ask yourself, I'm studying this method, I'm in this community. Could that be me? And uh, the answer is yet yeah, to be determined.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only time will tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, of course, I now want to get into North Coast. It cool. is an absolutely incredible group that you and so many other great people have formed. It's been all over the world. People love it. People can't get enough of it. And rightly so. It is an amazing hip hop improv show. I'd like to hear how did North Coast get
1: started? Yeah. So um, I met our co-founder, sorry, the the founder and then... Uh, the founder of North Coast is this guy named James Robolata that I met in uh, early 2009, like January actually, in a musical improv class at UCB. It was him and his only idea. He conceived it. And he got the gears turning the first four-ish years, four or five years. And um, he ran the group those years as well. I was a part of the OG, original crop of North Coast members, and I have been running the team since 2013. And so James uh, pulled me aside one day and that musical improv class and was like, hey, you know, want to? I'm starting like a Baby Wants Candy type thing, but <laughs> we're going to be rapping instead. You win? And I was like, I am in. Sign me up. And so we went and started rehearsing in the dorms at Fordham University, cause he was an RA student life employee there. And so we had free space. And so we rehearsed every week. It was, this is what you do, you rehearse. And so we had coaches and we developed this scene painting form that we do to this day, the opening. And um, James Robolata, is the reason north coast exists and then i sort of took the torch and ran with it in a big way in 2013.
0: you know what's so great about north coast is that you see a lot of different hip-hop groups and musical improv groups and other groups that have for lack of a better term some sort of gimmick and you see a lot of groups how they focus more on the gimmick and kind of sacrifice the performance level a bit with you guys every single thing is at the highest level the beatboxing and the rapping is phenomenal but also you don't sacrifice performance at all all of you perform at such an incredible level and this the scenes that you do are just so superb how do you manage to keep everything at its best highest level every single time
1: thank you very much for those kind words um so yeah north coast has always been committed to rehearsing we it's just in our dna so that's a big part of it um we don't add members that the entire team doesn't unanimously agree on improvising with people and being creative and playing with them on stage is very intimate and you have to know that those people have your back and you have to know that you can trust them with your idea and they can trust you with theirs. And so we make sure that the vibes are good. We do a six-month temporary ad to make sure the vibes are good. And then if they are responsive to emails, show up on time to rehearsal, all these things, that helps with the creative. Because we're all showing mutual respect towards the team and towards the process. Uh, But it's improv, it's improvisers, shit happens. Yeah, And we got a policy for everything now.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely.
1: But I would say the shortest answer is that we rehearse and that we keep the bar really high and we communicate a lot. We communicate a lot. And so We always have coaches keeping us in check. We make sure that the bar is kept high, and we keep rehearsing.
0: In the initial development of North Coast, what were some of the challenges that you and everyone else were finding with blending the improv scenes and the hip hop together?
1: Uh, The biggest challenge was not winking at hip hop. So you do a scene. It organically leads to a rap. There are some shows that made it their gimmick to be like, now it's time for a rap battle in the middle of the scene. We don't do that. We don't wink at the fact that a rap is starting. We are in the scene. We're talking, we're talking, we're talking. And then a hook gets dropped or the beat gets dropped and you go. You just start rapping on your point of view. And uh, that helps it feel more like musical theater and less like a kind of a short form style improv show. Uh so more like a musical um improv long form paradigm the way Baby Ones Candy developed it.
0: So it's a lot more organic, which sounds phenomenal. I love that. I love that so much.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: And you know what's also interesting is that whoever you see beatboxing, they're not just beatboxing. They're performing right along with you they're not like standing in the scene with you but you could tell that the beatboxers are also performing as well which i also love so much
1: yeah yeah we try to find beatboxers that have a sense of theatricality maybe even studied some improv one of our longtime beatboxers kayla is as good at improv as as she is at beatboxing and so we have some others that have you know, joined in on the dancing with us, dropped hooks, done beat rhyming. I don't know if you know what beat rhyming is, but it's where they talk, you know, you make it clear with L.D. Madeira. Well, I think I said your last name wrong. but um, No, you said so, it right. You said it right. Oh, okay, good. Um, but even if
0: you didn't, I, I, that just blew my mind. <laughs> I wouldn't have then, noticed either way.
1: And what I just did was like a D minus compared to what Kayla and Mark Martin Mandible is what his beatbox name is. Um, I think it actually doesn't go by Mandible anymore. But a lot of the beatboxes we work with can talk and they can beatbox at the same time. And it's cool to see the beat rhyme. It's just like, what, what? You know? Yeah.
0: (laughs) You know, I'm going to play that back a couple of times because that just sounds so cool.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Type in beat rhyming on YouTube and just enjoy.
0: Oh man, that's that's an afternoon for me right there.
1: <laughs> there it is.
0: You've had the opportunity to tour North Coast in so many different cities across the country and different parts of the world. What yeah. are some of the reactions that you've gotten as you've taken the show out on the road?
1: We've gotten a myriad of reactions. You know, we've played to crowds that English was their second language and just the energy of it just spoke to them you know we have performed in iceland we have performed in amsterdam and had people go i i didn't understand some of that but boy was it fun and <laughs> like that's that's meaningful but then we have performed in places like new orleans where they don't did you know they don't get suggestions in the long form scene in new orleans did you know that
0: i did not know that
1: yeah. So their whole thing is they just organically find it together. Wow. And so we did our show there and you know, they were like, yeah, that was cool. You know, a little more regimented than ours, but we loved it. You know, I guess in the big easy, that is how it would be. But touring North coast has been one of the joys in my life, getting to see the country, getting to see Canada and getting to see Europe with your best friends and performing to people who it's maybe their first time ever seeing musical improv, maybe it's their first time seeing hip hop improv. It's just special. So it never gets old. It's special. And I'm grateful for the times I've gotten to do it.
0: Well, thanks to you guys, hip hop improv really has become a lot more in the forefront now. And you see a lot of a lot more hip hop improv groups that are forming and in different venues. How do you see hip-hop improv now? Do you feel like it's definitely something that's emerging and becoming more of a special thing?
1: I think that post-COVID world, it's still popular. I think it was more popular before COVID. I think freestyling and integrating it into comedy is probably in some ways plateaued, Um, but there was so many teams that popped up between 2016 and 2019. There's teams in hip hop, improv teams in London. There's hip hop, improv teams in LA, uh, all over the country now, Miami. Um, And so we love coming down to just the funny, by the way. I feel like in some ways it's plateaued and in other ways, it's still finding new people. I think maybe because I've been around for a minute, I feel like, oh, yeah, it's everyone who's seen it, has wanted to try it, has tried it. And then I'll have a new student who's just so overjoyed with it, and it'll reinvigorate me.
0: Well, obviously, COVID changed the landscape of so much, obviously. And during that time, as we all know, we're all stuck at home. We can't go to theaters. We can't go to stages. How did you manage to get through that time of the pandemic?
1: We're still pivoting. I mean, it has been a journey to find a new consistent run. You know, we've ran at The Pit, Asylum and Network Caveat. We've been working on our hybrid setup and continuing to adjust it. We're talking now from my, I got a creative space to support just how much digital projects North North Coast was doing. We started getting hybrid gigs and didn't know how to do them. And people wanted technical things we couldn't do. And clients were like, can you do it on teams? Can you, what's your stream key? It's like, oh my God, I didn't sign up for this. (laughs) And now I know how to do all that stuff. So (laughs) I think that a post COVID North coast is still, we're still transitioning, but in many ways we're much stronger because we know who we really are.
0: That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Do you like to, here and there, try other things outside of North Coast, like other improv shows or other acting or anything like that?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I'm i actively looking to spread my wings in terms of solo sketch, solo characters. I love performing solo characters. I also love performing musical songs comedic songs live and i used to play in all sorts of non-comedic bands and i miss that i really want to be in some sort of this is going to sound crazy but some sort of surf rock band i would love (laughs) that so i think that north coast will continue thriving but also we're not gonna like we had our festival two years ago but now that i know what goes into that um unless there's some sort of sponsorship or something or way way to co-pro it with another theater, I think that what you'll be seeing most from us, um, I guess you weren't really asking about what North Coast is doing in the future. Yeah. For me, expanding my horizons into solo characters mostly. Yeah. And more, more digital content that features me.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I'm definitely a fan of solo work myself.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah when you do
0: so much, what do you do to recharge yourself? Because obviously it could be easy to feel burnout after doing so many shows and doing so much work. What do you do to kind of reinvigorate yourself and recharge yourself as a performer and as an all around human being?
1: I, I, I think about this a lot, especially because I suffered pretty badly in my twenties from go, go, go nonstop. And I just something had to go. Things had to get snipped. It was impossible after time. And now I consider myself quite skilled at the art of self-care. And I have recently fallen in love with surfing. That's why I talked about the surf rock band thing earlier. I went on a trip to Hawaii and took a lesson and it was teeny tiny waves in the white water, (laughs) nothing to shake a stick at. But still, I was hooked. I was like, Oh my God, the Florida kid in me have fully emerged. So I've been taking lessons in Far Rockaway actually Queens, and loving it. So that's one of my favorite ways to recharge Mm -hmm. and spending time with my girlfriend, Lisa, and also our Scottish terrier.
0: But surfing first.
1: So, I know, right? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> she would be so bad. she I don't know if she'll make it this far in the podcast. We'll see.
0: <laughs> you know, it's funny. I lived uh, in Florida my whole life, and I've never gone surfing at all. And I still won't do it. Okay. Well, I, I still won't, and here's why. Because my wife really loves Shark Week. And every single year on Shark Week, there's that one documentary that says – these sharks bit into these surfers this one time. And I'm like, Nope, I'm out. I'm out.
1: (laughs) I respect that. I respect that.
0: (laughs) Douglas. I have one final question for you, my friend. All right. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want other people to hear?
1: I think the one piece of advice that has served me well is you can't, succeed at something without knowing what done looks like there has to be a clear this is completed in order to feel any sort of success around anything done has to have a clear definition because if you're always always raising the bar on yourself you are not going to enjoy your journey as a creative person So you need to know what done looks like and you need to know when to shutter your windows at me, the artist LLC, go home and be a human.
0: That's wonderful. Douglas, I had a great time, my friend. I hope you did too.
1: I had a great time. Thank you for having me on.
0: And thank you so much. And I wish you all the best and all the best to your buddies at North Coast.
1: Thank you so much. You as well.
0: And once again, apologies to your girlfriend for getting second billing (laughs) for surfing. (laughs) After
1: surfing. Oh, my God. No.
0: Thank you so much, Douglas Wittig, for being on the podcast today. And thanks for reminding us all to remember what done looks like. Be clear on what your vision is, and you don't have to keep raising the bar on yourself. Just enjoy your journey as a creative person. Douglas Wittick is a great person to get to know, so I invite all of you listeners out there to get to know him by visiting his website, douglaswittick.com. And learn more about the world's best hip-hop improv comedy show, North Coast, by visiting their website, northcoastnyc.com. Question. Did you have a good time today? Did you enjoy this episode? Do you know other people who would really enjoy listening to this podcast? Then by all means, let your friends know what a great time you're having here by sharing improv and magic with them. And be sure to rate and review. It greatly helps the podcast. It helps me, and I'm sure in some ways, it probably helps you too, in ways I'll never understand. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I'm LD, and I'll catch you next time here on Improv and magic.